This is not intended to be a theocracy. Uh, there is supposed to be separation between the power of church and the power of state. If people don't push back, we easily could become much more of a theocracy than our founders ever intended, and it's up to all of us to push back to prevent that. Welcome to Sprouts from Pacifica, radio from the grassroots. Sprouts is a weekly program that showcases radio productions by independent community media. We bring local stories to a global audience, produced at a different location every week. This week, we present Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Isha. This is the 23rd part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting, Jenny. Thanks, Isha. It's always such a pleasure. We've been talking throughout this long series about the tension between these two constitutional rights, the right of everyone to be treated equally under the law and the freedom of religion, and which one should take precedence when they come into conflict. As we've discussed extensively in this series, the wall of separation between church and state is being dismantled before our eyes. Religious organizations are asserting a right to discriminate against LGBTQ people, and the Supreme Court is legitimizing that position. Just recently, in a case we discussed earlier, the court ruled that the state of Maine can be required to use taxpayer money to subsidize religious schools that discriminate against us. When we left off last time, we were talking about how polarized our society has become and whether religious people can learn to embrace LGBTQ equality without disavowing their religious beliefs. We've also talked about the hundreds of new state bills and laws targeting LGBTQ people, particularly youth. One of these new laws is Florida's infamous new parental rights and education law, which a lot of people are calling the Don't Say Gay law, which limits discussion of LGBTQ topics in schools and empowers aggrieved parents to sue schools if they think the policy has been violated. What would you say to parents who don't want their kids exposed to LGBTQ culture and history in schools? I would say to parents that it's their role and responsibility to provide education in the home but it's not their responsibility to censor the information that's provided, certainly not in public schools. And beyond that, I think what's important for all sorts of parents to know is that LGBTQ kids are a minority of students, of children, I should say. But parents often don't know and won't know for years what the identity of their own child or children will turn out to be. And efforts to withhold information to keep their kids isolated from that information can be really harmful and make the path so much harder for their own children. That this information that's true and inclusive and respectful of LGBTQ people, people in history, people active in culture now, I mean, that information can be life-affirming and protective for young people who feel different, feel vulnerable, don't feel that they fit in. Those feelings sometimes can lead to kids engaging in various kinds of self-harm or at least being a lot more miserable than they need to be. So the encouragement to parents is don't be afraid of true information. Get to know who your kids really are. 
You're not going to change who they are by keeping them isolated from true information. And actually, you might be providing them the truest form of love by letting them have information that may help them understand who they are and find their path. With some of the focus on schools, we're hearing about school districts that don't want to include LGBTQ culture and history in their curricula. What would you say to them? Well, I think it is very troubling, and it's also not a new problem for teachers, school administrators, school boards, and others who have devoted themselves to providing education, good education for the next generation, to find themselves targeted by political groups, sometimes by groups of activist parents who want to control what everybody learns and want to control what people think. Sometimes I think the adults who play that role in providing good quality education are among the most courageous because they often are in the public eye and they're facing some angry parents who think that they have authority that they just don't have. So I would say to those who are trying to provide good information, I would say thank you. To those who don't want to include that information, I would say don't be censors. Don't think you're serving young people or the next generation by keeping them ignorant. Our society functions best when we have an educated community of people who can think critically, who love learning, who are curious about the world and want to find good answers to the problems our society faces. So please don't cheat our children who are looking to learn who they are and to understand our history so that we don't have to repeat some of the problematic bad parts of our own history so that we can build a society that is stronger and works better and is welcoming of everyone. Please do your job without discriminating and without censoring so that we don't have to sue you. States all over the country are enacting new laws targeting LGBTQ youth. I'm thinking particularly of the governors of Texas and Florida, who seem to be working up their base by targeting LGBTQ youth. What would you say to them? Well, unfortunately, I think we are seeing a resurgence right now of targeting of LGBTQ people and young people especially as a political tool. It's toxic. It creates fear. The fear can sometimes be deadly. It's wrong, and they should stop. They only do it when it works. We have seen cycles of this in in recent years. We saw the so-called bathroom bills for a number of years that made it so difficult and sometimes impossible for young trans people to stay in school because they didn't have reasonable access to the bathroom, which everybody needs. And after a considerable amount of education and a, a lot of hard work by a lot of people, those legislative proposals stopped being as effective as they had been initially. We've seen the same thing about some other sex-segregated facilities and programs. So the targeting right now that we're seeing about access to medical care and, and sports programs in schools, I think those are having some effect, giving some success to the politicians who are doing this because they take advantage of the lack of information about these topics and lack of information about what the medical consensus has been for years now about supporting trans and non-binary young people. I think what it means is that we need to support and protect the young people and their families who are being targeted this way. Frankly, it's appalling that some politicians are beating up on some of the most vulnerable young people for their own political 
gain for their own political purposes. And it's very dismaying to see the public responding this way and, again, kind of being triggered by some of what is said in the name of protecting young people. You know, I think many people have a visceral response when they're told that there's a threat to children. It's something basic, I think, where many living creatures want to protect young people. And this is a political tactic that preys on that good instinct that many people have. So it's up to all of us to call this out, demand that it stop, and in the places where some of these bills are passing, perhaps not all of them all at once, but there is litigation, there will be more litigation. The litigation, I hope, will continue to yield court orders to block some of the most harmful measures, but it also drives the conversation in the public education about why these measures are so wrongheaded. It really is on everybody's shoulders to call this out. These tactics will stop when they stop bearing fruit for these politicians, and we we need to make that happen sooner rather than later. Are there other things related to these issues that you'd like to explain to people? Well, you know, I, I think it's a particularly despicable political tactic when a tiny vulnerable group of people is targeted for somebody else's political gain. And, you know, that is one of the things that can happen in a democracy when majorities vote. If you have a majority of people who don't have very much information about a minority, the rights of that minority can easily be sacrificed at the ballot box. That is something that we are supposed to be able to address uh, in court where everybody has constitutional rights that uh, should be there to protect individuals and to protect minority groups. We are facing a challenge right now that former President Trump did successfully appoint and get confirmed through Mitch McConnell's Senate. Many judges who were selected because they have a particular view, some of which supports this kind of targeting of LGBTQ people. At this point, I believe the figure is still about a third of federal appellate judges had explicitly anti-LGBTQ public records when they were tapped by President Trump and confirmed by Mitch McConnell's Senate. So that is not the way our system is supposed to work. The judges are supposed to be there to dispense equal justice and to enforce the Constitution. This means we have a problem for all of us to address, but I still believe this system can work if we all do our part to insist that the Constitution be respected and that minority groups cannot be targeted this way without us being able to vindicate everybody's equality rights in court. This comes back to what you were talking about earlier. Where can we turn if the courts don't support our equality? Well, I think we always turn to the American public and to the job that we all have to do public education. When LGBTQ people are invisible, we can be mischaracterized. False things can be said about us. When we come forward and we tell our stories and we help people understand who we are, then it's much more difficult for anybody to lie about us, to make us into some kind of threat that we are not. So I think that public education function, that coming out function, that's an everyday responsibility that everybody has to the extent people can do it safely. My belief is that Most people in this country actually don't intend to cause harm. They don't intend to hurt other people. 
Sometimes they act in ways that are hurtful when they don't understand, when they don't know, and when they have been induced to do that by somebody manipulating them with propaganda or false information. If we continue to do the educational work and we continue to do all the other things we have to do as members of this society, which includes educating ourselves and voting, paying attention to who is seeking what kind of role in society, all of those things, we, we know those are the things we all have to do. And if we do them, then I think we continue to make progress, even though it's not always in a direct line. Should we just have a national vote upholding these civil rights? Well, we don't actually have a process for doing a national referendum. So the question of whether we should do it is, well, we don't really have a way to do it. But even if we did, and I mean, for example, we do have initiative and referendum votes in many states. And I think the the bottom line answer there is that the rights of a minority should never be put to a majority vote That's not the way majoritarian power is supposed to operate. We should have majority votes about subjects where everybody, in a general sense, stands on equal footing. So people are voting on something where we all have a similar stake in what the answer is. We shouldn't have a situation where, where, for example, I'm taking a vote on whether you should have the same rights that I have. That's not really the way a constitutional democracy is supposed to function. This is Sprouts from Pacifica, this week featuring Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Our guest is Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Do you have a sense of how strong the majority's commitment about LGBTQ equality actually is? In other words, are a lot of people who are generally in favor of LGBTQ equality easily swayed by arguments that may seem to have some superficial logic, like protecting girls' sports by excluding transgender kids banning or even criminalizing gender transition care for trans kids, and keeping gender and sexuality indoctrination out of K-3 schools. Well, first, let's recognize that we're not talking about indoctrination of anybody at any level of school. Uh, When we talk about accurate information, historical information, or current information about the fact that, say, transgender people exist, which they always have, or that lesbian, gay, bisexual people exist, as we always have. This is not indoctrination. This is accurate information about human beings, our society, and our history. And sometimes uh, it means accurate and appropriate, age-appropriate information about human sexuality. In public schools, there are rules about what uh, sex ed is appropriate at what age, and those standards in my view, make perfectly good sense. They just shouldn't be about erasing part of the classroom. Uh, They should be inclusive of all the people and they should be scientifically accurate and help young people to take care of themselves and, and know what to expect as they're growing up. And some of that education should be done in the home. Some of it, some of it should be done in schools, but it's not indoctrination and it doesn't change a person's 
sexuality or, or gender identity to receive information. I think there are some people who who believe that accurate information causes people to change because they're being indoctrinated, but that's actually not what the research shows. And and I think the the professionals have known that for a very long time. You know, I think as we've been discussing, it is true that people can sometimes be swayed or triggered by arguments that are about something that they don't understand very well. And that seems like a reasonable way to protect somebody from some kind of harm or unfairness. What I've seen is that many people, and probably most people, return to a general principle of equality and inclusion when they have the information about what's really going on. And for example, when they have the the information about who transgender kids are, what they need, and what's really harmful for them. For lots of people, this is a subject that's somewhat new, including for parents who may have had and raised transgender kids, but who didn't know that that's what was going on, and their own family members had a harder time than they might have had if everybody had had more information kind of at the front end. So I think the bottom line is that when we do the education, we help people act based on their own instinct to treat other people fairly, to include other people, and to let go of the idea that some things are threatening if they're not really threatening. I mean, nobody enjoys feeling threatened or feel, feeling scared or, or feeling that society has become very confusing and that there's too much change. They don't know which end is up. I think everybody benefits when they can have the information that shows them that, you know, again, LGBTQ people, we're not a new phenomenon. We're not a threat to society. But if we can live more fully as who we really are, we can contribute more, we can be happier, we can do more, we can give more uh, because we are living more in, in our full identity. And that is beneficial in so many different ways. But we do have to dispel the ignorance. We do have to share the information that we have. We can't expect people to know us if we don't invite them to get to know us. And that's true about so many different types of differences, not just with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity. It's about culture. It's about religion. It's about so many different things. And if we share that information, we give people an opportunity to act according to their better instincts rather than their scared instincts. So we, we have a part to play in that. And when we do it, we invite people to, uh, to act according to their better inst instincts. If we give them that chance, then if they don't, we can insist. But we need to ask first, and we have to, we have to push them, we have to help them. The U.S. seems to be headed in a generally conservative direction. There's a lot of talk among commentators about Republicans winning the House and Senate in the November elections. We also seem to be headed in a direction that's specifically anti-LGBTQ. With hundreds of these state bills that target LGBTQ people, and particularly LGBTQ youth, how does this all guide your strategy at Lambda Legal? It seems like a constant game of whack-a-mole. Even if you defeat a law somewhere, it just seems to pop up somewhere else. It does sometimes seem like a game of whack-a-mole. It can be exhausting. It can be discouraging. When we see, and it's true, this year we have, by some counts, close to 300 bills, by other counts, close to 400 bills, targeting LGBTQ people or aiming to change rules to facilitate discrimination against LGBTQ people. It's, 
it's quite horrifying, really. And in some states, it's it's a frenzy. Uh, the bills aiming to do the same discriminatory thing for, introduced by multiple different people because some of those elected officials, some of those politicians want their own bill to prove some kind of arch-conservative, ultra-conservative bona fides. And it's very dispiriting to see that. At the same time, I think these bills do create an opportunity, they create a necessity for us to organize, for us to push back, and for us to talk about why this is all so misguided, so wrongheaded, what the negative consequences are for real people, including young people, who already are so vulnerable. And those conversations can create the opportunity the mechanism of change. It can make it possible to get to a place where there's so much broader and deeper understanding of who we are that society, including schools, including community organizations, are safer and more supportive for LGBTQ young people or or people of all ages. So I think our strategy at Lambda Legal, well, it continues to be in essence, what it has been for almost 50 years now, which is a mix of strategic impact litigation policy development and advocacy, and broad public education, where we aim to reach as many different audiences of people as we can, including many people who don't know us and many who don't agree with us yet. But again, if we don't share the information, if we don't engage with them, we're not giving them the opportunity to rethink some of the positions that may have been based on ignorance, unfamiliarity, or fear or propaganda, or misdirection by people who have something to gain politically or to gain in other ways. This has been a successful strategy for Lambda Legal, as I said, for almost 50 years now. 2023 will be our 50th anniversary year. And in some ways, it could feel discouraging that we are having some of the same, we are seeing some of the same attacks using children, arguments about what is good for children or the need to so-called protect children from us that we have seen decade after decade. These arguments recycle, they come back. That can be very discouraging. On the other hand, we have dealt with most of them before. They're coming in a slightly different form, but the essence is the same. And the answer from us needs to be the same too, that these things that are being said, whether it's as it was back in the 70s when Anita Bryant was accusing gay men of being sexual predators and pedophiles. There's some similar sort of slander happening now, this language that we hear about so-called grooming, that anybody who isn't getting right on board with some of these uh, anti-LGBTQ attack bills is is grooming, is, is creating threats to young people. Well, it's false, it's defamatory, it's really dangerous and damaging. And as we've done in the past, we need to call it out. It's nonsense. It's hurtful. It's a political tactic. And those that are doing it have to be shut down. They have to, they have to not win politically by doing this kind of thing. And when we stop them from winning, they'll stop doing it. You said earlier in this series that Lambda Legal will continue its important work until it's no longer needed. In our current climate, do you think that time will ever come? Well, I don't think that these issues will fully go away. We haven't seen an end to racism. We haven't seen an end to sexism and misogyny. We haven't seen an end to certain types of sexual abuse. Certainly, it continu- there continues to be a need for adults to protect children from the real harms. Uh, sexual abuse of children, 
incest, those are real things. And we need to call out where it's really happening, not have people falsely accused in a way that creates misdirection and allows some of the real harms to continue. So I think that the work will continue, but I do have confidence that as we are more visible, as we proceed forward, there's more and more understanding and support. And that means that more and more people are going to have support as they are young people finding who they are and coming into their own. There will be more people who get a good education, stay in school, don't find themselves living on the street and facing all sorts of dangers. We need to continue to prioritize making school and life in general safe and inclusive for all young people, including LGBTQ young people, and to recognize that for LGBTQ young people of color, those who may be immigrants and lack legal status, those who may also be living with a disability, I mean, some of these differences can compound and make the path that much harder for young people. So for all of us who care, and I hope the community of caring continues to grow, I think the work continues. It's going to continue for quite some time, but I am hopeful that as the work expands, the path will get safer and smoother for more and more young people. And that will be a victory even if we're not completely finished. We've talked quite a bit in this series about the erosion of the wall between church and state. What do you think will happen in the current political and legal climate if this erosion continues? Well, I'm afraid this erosion probably will continue given the makeup of our federal courts and in particular our our Supreme Court right now. And I think that is likely to have some difficult consequences for our society as a whole. However, some of the members of the Supreme Court do seem to hold religious views and views about religious rights that are out of step somewhat with the broad American public. So I think we may have a difficult period of imposition of religion, of some religious views on other people who do not share those views in public settings, in public life, in ways that create problems. It will be up to everyone who sees that happening to speak out about it and and to push back. Uh, The Supreme Court justices do hold the responsibility to interpret our Constitution, but when decisions are rendered that push society in a direction that many people disapprove of, that creates problems and barriers for lots of people, those decisions don't have to last any longer than the makeup of the court. So I think we are we are entering into a potentially challenging time, and the answer to those challenges is going to be public organizing, public education, and public speaking out that This is not intended to be a theocracy. Uh, There is supposed to be separation between the power of church and the power of state. That has been a founding principle of this country. It's ever more important as our society becomes that much more uh, pluralistic in matters of religion. If people don't speak up, if people don't push back, we, we easily could become much more of a theocracy than our founders ever intended, and it's up to all of us to pay attention and push back to prevent that. We're out of time again, Jenny, so we'll continue this conversation next time. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Isha. It's been really fun. That's it for this 23rd part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people, 
and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth broadcaster Tim and me, Isha. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Outcasting. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Sprouts is a weekly program produced in collaboration with community radio stations and independent producers across the country, bringing you local radio productions of national interest. The program is coordinated and distributed by Pacifica Radio. If you or someone at your radio station has a production that you wish to rebroadcast on Sprouts, contact our air traffic controller, Ursula Rudenberg, at Ursula at Pacifica.org. That's U-R-S-U-L-A at Pacifica.org. I'm Isha. Thank you for listening. See you next time on Sprouts.